What's up, everybody? Coming to you straight out of the DBTH sound room, we're bringing you another episode of the Music Podcast Deluxe. That's right, Muck and Dre are back, baby, and we're ready to blow your mind. Woo! In season two, we're going to keep doing what we do best, and that's talking about concerts, records, experiences, and everything in between. Make sure you stay up to date by hitting subscribe, because we're going to have some kick-ass guests coming your way. So stay a while, and make some time for music. We already have fresh pots upstairs. Every episode, we try to get the pots fresh, and the mic hot. I am a fan of black coffee. Yeah, I, got, I like a little bit of milk in it. Little milk? Just like it's great. Just, just like tan it up a little. Yeah. No sugar. I, I'm off the sugar. I like the bitterness for some reason. Oh, I just got used to it. I used to put like a load of sugar in my coffee, and then I realized it probably wasn't the best thing for me, so cut back on the sugar, pretty much ripped it right out. Well, you know, I'd look, at the end of the workday, you know, gives us a little boost so that we get some energy on this podcast and we don't sound like zombies. We got a good one this episode, episode number 16. What do we got for them? I am excited about this one. We're doing a Crate Diggers episode. So we're going to be focusing on our experiences and our experience buying used records, whether it's from a record store or from some random dude on Kijiji. There are certain things that we have learned along the way that we are going to pass on to you guys. You know what was great about the the last batch of uh, records we picked up was that we got a really good selection that was decently clean. I mean, I, just myself, I picked up some Maiden, uh, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. What did I get? Uh, Steve Miller compilation of stuff. You know, just something to throw on in the background. I got all that clean Paul McCartney, some Motley Crue for the wife, uh, the Van Halen. Oh, not supposed to mention the Van Halen because, you know, in the second part of this episode, we're going to go in depth and talk to you about a couple of the albums that we just most recently picked up. Muck picked two, I picked two, and we're going to go into it. But first, we're going to give you guys some advice about buying used records. You know, there's a lot of information out there, and there's a lot of gut feelings you can go off of. This is kind of the stuff that we resort to when we uh, we go through a, a buying process. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend like it's a complete guide, but... I feel like had I known a few of these things when I got started, I would have saved myself some money and some time. And some time and some money as well. Okay, so why don't we start by classifying kind of three personas? Let's call them categories. Okay, five. I feel like there's three categories of vinyl collectors. And in essence, we are pretty much a combination of those three categories. However, each person will lean towards... A, a different category. Let me explain. Our first category is the audiophile, and this is in no particular order. Typically, the audiophile is going to be much more concerned with how the album sounds than with what they're actually listening to. <laughs> they're going to care about where it was recorded, what label released it, where it was pressed, who did the mastering, and I mean, you can picture this type of listener. He's going to have typically a high-fidelity a turntable and a nice sound system. He cares about the details. He's going to be listening into every little nuance. He's going to be looking for those Blue Note jazz records and mobile fidelity pressings. He's going to care about every little detail. And if you're that kind of vinyl collector, there's some tips that we got for you. So we're talking about someone who is really on a mission to get 
this specific record because of a very, very, very particular reason. Yeah. For example, maybe the record sounds a little bit better if it was pressed in Japan. So he's going to go and he's going to find that record on Discogs or in a store. He's he's going to dig. He's going to hunt. He'll put in the extra effort for that sound quality, even if it's going from good to better. For that specific type of vinyl collector, if you're looking at used records, you're going to have to get used to washing your records. It's the best tool you have to keep your records sounding as crisp as they possibly can. And you don't need to be too scared of dust when you see a really rare record, something that you've been looking for for a while, and you you, you take it out of the sleeve and it, it's pretty dusty, but it doesn't have too many scuff marks. If you know how to clean your records, you can turn that into a real gem. That, you know, pulling out a record and seeing it really filthy scares me sometimes. So uh, just the experience we had washing your batch, I mean, that wasn't pleasant. I mean, you went through it a whole lot more than me. I only kind of got there for the back end, back end of the uh, batch, but man, that sucked. You're absolutely right. Like washing records is very time consuming. You're going to have to put in the extra labor for that extra increase in sound quality. Also, if you see a record with like a decently deep scratch or even a scratch in general, some of the lighter scuffs, they won't play any pops or cracks. But if you see a scratch and you really do care about how your records sound, you might want to avoid the purchase completely. Because what will end up happening is that you're going to get it. And, you know, during uh, Sympathy for the Devil, for example, there's going to be a pop at the beginning, at the first two minutes of the song. <laughs> and you're going to know it's coming and it's going to bother you. And you're going to buy the next cleanest copy that you can find. So just save yourself the money in the first place and buy a good one if it's really going to bother you. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, what, a $10 difference in some cases for some of these older records? Yeah, there's a slight increase if it's better quality, for sure, in in price. But you're going to end up buying it anyway. Yeah, so you pay for it twice. Exactly. Or you're going to have to go through the headache of selling it afterwards. Just be patient. And find the right one. You'll save yourself a lot of money. Yeah. So you see how this is working here. Mm-hmm. We just described to you guys the audio file. Our next category is the music lover. This is typically an emotionally driven music collector. He's very nostalgic. He's going to go back and he's going to get all his albums from his teen years. Because that's what he used to listen to. He will have complete sets of artists. Because it's his favorite band. And... Although he likes to have a decent sound system, is not too concerned with going over the top with it or spending all kinds of money souping it up, even over time, maybe slowly over time, something like that would happen. If you haven't realized already, I am basically describing myself. Well, I mean, you you were going through this and I was like, well, shit, I have almost all my team top five on vinyl and I'm getting Ramstein in a couple weeks. The only thing I'm missing is like System of a Down, so... Once I get my hands on that, I have my team top five on vinyl. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm dead set on picking up some Rage Against the Machine. In fact, the entire collection. So, yeah, I, I would say I fall in that category. Yeah. Another characteristic of uh, the music lover, I feel that there is usually a broad taste in music. Because they are emotionally driven, they can just as easily be a hip-hop fan, a rock fan, a metal fan, a punk fan, country folk. Their collection usually is is, is more diverse. They're also more forgiving as far as sound quality goes. The occasional pop and crack doesn't really get in the way of you really getting into the album. 
So that's one of the tips. So if you're looking at used records and you see some light scratches and you don't really, you're not too concerned with how it's going to sound and you, you know that you have a few other records that have some pops and scratches and you still listen to them all the time and it's, it's still super enjoyable and fun to do. Again, you can save yourself some money. Some of them are rare. You try and find a clean Led Zeppelin 4. No, they look like they've been written on with a knife. That's right. So if you're not an uh, audiophile, like if you don't have an audiophile expectation of quality, get the one with the light pops and scratches. Guys, I have a lot of them. My Fleetwood Mac Rumors, it's an original pressing, but it's got some scuffs and some pops and cracks. And like there's a, it gets a little noisy at times. But I still, I've spinned that so many times. I must listen to the album 50 times. Well, that's it. And there's going to be a point where, um, and, and I think, you described the best is we're, we're very similar in terms of how we listen to records. I often put it on as background music instead of just sitting there and focusing on all the sound. I'll turn my speakers while I'm working, throw on some vinyl. And to me, that's good enough. So I don't really necessarily mind unless it was a really bad scratch or if the whole record side played like shit, maybe I'd mind a little bit more. But I mean, when we're looking through vinyls, dirty's not bad, right? Dirty means that someone might've put this back because they didn't want to be bothered cleaning it. Exactly. And I mean, also, you, you, you're mentioning cleaning records. The, if you're more, if you fall more towards the music lover category, you're going to wash records, but you're going to do it less frequently. You know, you're going to be less concerned. You're going to do the problem ones. You're not going to clean your whole collection. You'll typically do the ones that are giving you some issues. So, I mean, these are all things to think, to think about. Oh, there's also something else I wanted to mention. Kijiji could be very useful to somebody that doesn't care too much about quality. Cause if you're going into somebody's house and you're looking at their personal collection and say they're a U2 fan and you're a U2 fan, you can get some solid sets from the same artist. Whereas if you're very quality driven and you want a clean record, you're probably going to waste a lot of time going and meeting people's people from Kijiji because typically most of those records are going to be scrapped. Right. If a lot of other audiophiles are looking for it and there's not a lot of clean records out there, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Look at some of the, the experiences we had finding Jimi Hendrix. Most of the time, even those, they're, they're, one out of ten is even considered playable yeah. from my standards after Very I look through them. So. And for that reason, actually, if you are an audiophile, you'd probably be spending your time a lot better on message boards and specific groups of other audiophiles that are selling uh, albums. That way you're, you have a certain guarantee as far as the quality goes. Okay. So what if I found a stack of old ass records in my basement and I had this old turntable that I didn't know if it actually worked or not and really didn't care if it damaged the records? What would that make me? I'm not saying I do this. <laughs> well, I guess that would, uh, lead us to our third category, the hipster, which is the kind of vinyl collector that is interested in it because it's the trend. Because he follows so-and-so on Instagram and it looks cool. They're likely to take pictures, post things online. They're not too concerned with what they're listening to. They want to get rarer stuff, uh, collectibles. They're the guy that sees, uh, you know, the Velvet Underground, uh, the uh, Andy Warhol album cover with the banana. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. They've never heard of the Velvet, Velvet Underground, but they've seen that picture on Instagram. So they'll buy the album, mm -hmm. regardless of quality. The album could be completely scratch beat the crap. They will be on top of that just because they want to take the picture and send it to Instagram. And I mean, it might sound like a negative thing, but I'm all for 
people buying records. <laughs> I don't really care where they fall in these categories. I'm a, I'm friends to all of these categories because I see the hipster in myself as well. Because I'm posting online all the time. Of and course. I, I follow all kinds of people that do the same. There's a, a trendy aspect to it. And, and I'll buy a collection just to buy a collection. You know, I'll go find a record that's maybe a little more valuable. Like, I mean, I always fall back to the Queens of the Stone Age album. But, uh, I mean, I pretty much had to have it to complete the collection. Regardless so, of, even if it didn't sound up to par, you went and you got the bootleg. Yeah. Because it had to be complete. Right. right. And then if they ever re-release it, I'll just pick it up and the bootleg will go in a frame or something just because it's cool. Okay. So as, as far as tips go for the hipster, you should be concerned with buying a record that is too damaged to play. Now, it's all fine if you don't mind having pops and scratches and you want to buy your records and you're, you, you know, you don't listen too often. So you're not too concerned with the condition. But if the scratch is too deep, you could potentially break your needle. Yeah, that's that's not cool. No. So even if you don't care what it sounds like, you should still be concerned with what you're allowing your needle to go through. Yeah, and I mean, that even applies for like shit that might be stuck on. You don't want to run your needle through something that could potentially get caught up on your needle and then transfer to some of your better records, right? I mean, we always have the policy of we at least try to brush the records off to get the surface dust so we don't run an old record through, through our needle. But I mean, I don't take super good care of my vinyl player to that extent, but I'll always brush my records, you know? So if it doesn't look like you should be running it on the top of your, your plate, you probably shouldn't. Just to end that off, think about those three categories, the audiophile, the music lover, and the hipster, and understand where you fall in that spectrum. Then you'll know what to look for and what not to look for when you're buying used records. Now, there are, however, some guidelines for the general record collector. Yeah, I mean, typically, I say go with two people, even if it's only 200 records. You're talking about like a GG meeting or a Craigslist deal? Yeah, well, deal. Not, not for safety reasons, but you can get through a, a pile of records so much faster when you go with someone and you both know your own music taste. So you can kind of... You can do like a primary sort. That's it. So And, and have a preliminary list and have uh, some some ideas of the style of music you want. Like going into this one, we knew if, if ever we see ACDC, grab it. What's also really helpful is if you start going through the piles, make a preliminary pile. Don't take time to check everything, right? And don't get your hopes up right away, obviously. But... Make that preliminary pile and start going through them afterwards. It's going to save you a lot of time. You start going through those bins a lot faster. You're talking potentially about somebody that has like hundreds of records lying around. Could take you two hours, two, three hours easily just to go through them. And then if there's a few that you want to listen to to make sure they sound good, you have to account for all this. And I mean, a lot of times as well, you can get away with saving a little bit of money if the cover's all beat up or if it even remotely looks like there's some water damage to it and you want to give it a try, you might get away with a dollar for the record, you know? So, I mean, I don't recommend if it's uh, completely warped that you throw it on, but at the same time, you may be able to save some money if the uh, the cover's a little bit ripped or in worse shape than some of the other stuff. Oh, dude, it's happened to me more than once where there has been, like, serious water damage to the cover, and then I pop the disc out and it's super clean and it plays like a dream. I'm all over those, because you're right. You can cut price. Bargain, bargain, bargain. You went there, you did the work, right? You took the time to go through the bin, save other people time. You can you can save some money. People don't need to be charging $30, $40 a record. 
You're right, man. It's very important to realize that if you do a Kijiji meet and you get your ass all the way over there and you spend your time digging through the fucking dusty pile of old ass records, you're going to get a deal for that. Okay. So we're, yeah. do- we're done telling them how to buy used records. Yeah. As, they if, got the we, as if we know, uh, what we're talking about. Look, just take all this shit with a grain of salt. Okay. It might be good advice. But there's more good advice out there. Go to the message boards, read, go to YouTube, learn how to wash your fucking records. You know, inform yourself for God's sake. I think, you know, it, it leads us to a good point where we can, uh, we'll try to get another guest on throughout this season, uh, that can maybe tell us a little bit more about the process. You know what would be kind of fun? We should do a how to video, how to wash your records. Okay. Well, we can't do, like, we can't use anything you did because we failed. Big time fail. Yeah, so we can try that. We'll- no, but it's a learning process, man. Like the first time I washed records, I'll tell them. The first time I washed records, I have a manual uh, bath record bath system. So you basically put this, <coughs> you put the record on a spindle, and you place the spindle on either side of this bath, and you spin it, and it passes through a, a brush and a solution that cleans the record. See, I put them into the sleeves before they were properly dried. We rushed it. Now, uh, I looked into it, and what I should have done is have a microfiber cloth to give it a little Ooh. rundown. Now, I got the cloths, so I'm ready for my next session. I just got to buy some new fluid. And redo, like, the whole day of work that you spent on it. It was, like, I'll help four you, hours. I'll help you. I'll bring a couple extra over just to get a good clean on a couple. Yeah. And we'll take but you know what? I played some of the ones with the smudges. They play pretty decent. Okay, so it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's just some light marking. You know what else isn't so bad? We got some really sick records on this pile. Yeah. What we're going to do now is we're going to give you a quick rundown on a couple of our favorite finds from this last batch of records that we bought. Some quick picks here. Some quick picks. Do I start? Yeah, let's go ahead. Go ahead. Do we do that theme music there where we like the the Quintin? Do Do we run the Quintin? Run the Quintin. Run the Quintin. Van Halen 1, self-titled, came out in 1978. I gotta tell you something, I I really wasn't a fan of this band for the longest time, and I think the reason why was because I was focusing on their later work, 19, uh, 1984 and on, 1984, it's Jump, they had some synths on that album, it's a great album, but then after that they got a little bit too... Too clean. Was that Van Halen 2 or? There was Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2, then I think it's uh, Women and Children First, then 1984. Okay, so essentially you're not a huge fan. I'm not 100% on that, but but that's about right. You're not a huge fan, but you got a... Well, until I heard Van Halen 1, it's just, well, it, it just, it turns out that they're one of the best hard rock bands that have ever existed. So that that album when it hit the I, stage, I, and was I can't like, believe I'm saying that, but this is one of the sickest albums that I've ever heard. Yeah, it, it's dubbed as like one of the greats to be a, like a release album, right? Yeah, often on the top ten like best rock albums, but definitely best hair metal rock albums. Eddie Van Halen basically introduced finger tapping to the guitar world. Had a huge influence on heavy metal music. And how fast guitarists played. 
There was a whole emphasis on his technique and how quickly he can play the notes. The, it, this was not really focused on before. We're st- and we're still talking about early on, right? 78. 78. So. And then you have David Lee Roth basically jumping around the stage like an acrobat. This guy used to train hours a day working on flexibility and different kind of gymnastics and stuff like that. So that he, like, he was that focused on making his stage performance like a huge spectacle. I'm talking jumping splits in the air, 10 feet up, you know, shit like that. Now, don't let all this showing off confuse you. If you listen to the album, this is really raw. That's what I didn't understand. I thought Van Halen was very clean. But you go to the early stuff and you get this whole other kind of party vibe. Like, they're a party rock band, for sure. But it's deeper than that. Well, it's not like super crisp, well-recorded sound, right? No, there's actually quite a few mistakes in the recording. They must have been pretty hammered when they were doing, they were ironing it out for sure. Yeah, but I mean, the record is fantastic. And what's fucking thing? uh, I think it up to date, it sold 10 million copies in the US. It sold just as much as 1984. That's the, their, their biggest album, their most pop album. Well, I mean, I had the tape, right? And we did that whole uh, thing up north where we we did the mixtape. But, I mean, the tape was so beat up that it just got eaten in the machine. Yeah. That was a little bit of a tragedy, but... Yeah, I'm I'm happy you got this. I'm happy you got this. I mean, I think when I picked it out of the bin and I tossed it to you, it was pretty good. Yeah, honestly, it was... And when I threw it on for the first time, I mean, it opens with Running With The Devil. You know what I mean? Da-da! Da-da-da-da! Yeah. Just heavy, you know, like... It, it, it's, it just puts you in that fucking mood. Then, yeah, I mean, you got, you really got me. Ain't talking about love. The album is great. There's not a shit song on Both there. sides? Both sides. Solid. Okay, man. You want to take over here? What well, do you got there? Uh, let me, uh, let me throw you back like my, a curveball. Curveball. Curve it. Rush, Moving Pictures, 1981 was their eighth album. Went 4X Platinum. Goddamn. And was recorded at, uh, the renowned Le Studio in Morin Heights. That is so here. cool. Unfortunately, the studio recently burnt down. Yeah, but, uh, it was abandoned before it burnt yeah, down. Yeah, it's even. been, it was, it was beat up for a while. But. Yeah, it's too bad, but some really great albums. We, we should do a whole episode talking about albums that were recorded there. Let's do it later on. Yeah, we'll put that, put that, put that on the list, dude. Put that on the list. Write that shit down. Okay. Yo, but just before we get into it here, I got a question. How do you feel about Getty Lee's voice? Look, I'm going to be honest with you, and it might be detracting from uh, the question a little bit. Maybe I'm going to curve or I'm going to uh, dodge the question slightly, but I only really like side one of moving pictures. I don't really like the rest of Rush. I'm sorry if that offends someone, but I just really like the way the album opens, so Tom Sawyer, and then I like um, YYZ, and sometimes I'll deal with Red Barrachetta. So, I mean, I don't really like the second side of the album. Look, the second side of the album is a lot less poppy, you know? And I feel like you have to understand Rush's history as a prog rock band. I, I, you, I don't see you like a prog rock guy, you know? The first side of the album is very much hard rock, except for YYZ, you know? Uh, and then you got the second half is kind of more different. So I could understand why you would say that. But I was referring to the high-pitchedness in his voice. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. Like, I mean, the album opens with Tom Sawyer. So 
to say that his voice his voice annoys me. I don't think so because I know plenty of people that hear Rush and turn off the radio like they cannot stand his voice. Well, how many times do they turn Shom off in the day then? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they must not be shown listeners, that's for sure. No, I mean, uh, to this day, Rush is all over the radio, right? Especially Tom Sawyer, especially YYZ. And Limelight. Yes, that's correct. Which Tom is- Sawyer and Limelight are on this album. Yeah, all on side one. What what makes this album really a, a awesome find is it's in such great quality. It even had like the, the high quality plastic sleeve um, inside the inside the uh, the cover. So as soon as I pulled it out, I was like, wow, this must be great shape. The uh, Japanese-style sleeve. Yeah, yeah. So I checked the vinyl. It was, like, pretty much not a scratch on it. So um, just listening to it, and I think I'm going to throw it on afterwards. You're going to hear some crazy shit, like, the way it's recorded. And, I mean, you look at the the band, and and you were talking about the singer, but Neil Peart, he has one of the biggest drum setups on a stage I've ever seen. It's something like, it's like 200 pieces or something. It's a a monster He should name it. He should name his drum cage. It's so big. Godzilla. No, 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 no. Not a, not a person. A, a, a place. It should have its own area code. <laughs> Neil Pertland, you know? Pertland. Or Pert... Pertlandia? Pertlandia. <laughs> you have to emphasize how groundbreaking the album was. Like, in the progression of Rush, they were a heavily prog like a progressive rock band. And here they are in the early 80s, not shying away from where music is going, using synths and using different methods of production. We're talking about, what's his name, Bob Ludwig? Yes, who, uh, who he mastered. He mastered, mastered that. This guy was top in the business here. You know, like, you have one of the greats mastering it, and you have their biggest album yet with the 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 most poppy installments that they have. And it's 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 very widely regarded as their best album. Uh, absolutely. And then it's something. After after a background like that, to get to 81 and to release that and then continue changing it, it got to a place where I really wasn't interested after moving pictures, but they still did well and they still held their fan base. I think they have over 20 albums. Well, right after Moving Pictures, they did uh, Exit Stage Left. So I think typically every four albums, studio albums, they would release a live album. So I also have Exit Stage Left. And uh, the only reason why I was really happy to find Moving Pictures is because my Exit Stage Left is really beat to shit. So now at least you have some I have good, something that's clean, good. Yeah. rush. That's the audio audiophile in me, just a little bit. Dude, do you remember Guitar Hero YYZ? Of course. I mean, I kind of grew up on that shit, right? So God, even still to this day, today I listen to YYZ and I could I could picture getting to the end of that song and just being like, "Oh God, yeah, you finished! Like, yeah, what did this God, game just put me through?" Yeah. And I mean, another one was like um, uh, Freebird and shit. When you got to the solo in Freebird, your like hands were on fire. But then they started getting crazy with like. The metal stuff through the through the fire was it through the fire and flames. Oh yeah, there, there was the, or Dragon Force there. Exactly, that's the song. I couldn't play that shit. No, I'm, no, I'm no. not going to devote. But it was fun to try to play Rush, and it was fun to yeah, get a yeah. little bit of it. No, and, we had some uh, good times. Yeah, it, 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 there's emotional or sentimental value to some of these songs. So having that album for me was like jackpot when I saw it. Okay, okay, okay. Look, our video game episode was last episode. Go listen to episode 15 if you want to hear us talk about. 
video game soundtracks and music and video games. But for right now, I'm going to take over here. Yeah, what do you got for us? This is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band from 75 to 85 Live. Now, this fucking thing is five LPs. And let me tell you, they are all clean. And like Rush's Moving Pictures Mastered by Bob Ludwig. Sweet. So, like, high-quality mastering job on this stuff. The thing sounds fantastic. There's 40 songs. It's five LPs. Yeah, when I picked that out of the bin, like, I kind of regret putting it back. But again, you can't have them all, right? So, I'm happy you got it. You gotta pick your battles. I I really dismissed it because it was really ragged. Like, I thought the whole box was falling apart. Well, look, I'm looking at it right now. It looks like there's some water damage. And it's not too bad. But as soon as you pop it open and you slide the disc out of the sleeve... It was one of those. If it's not perfectly clean, there's very light scuff marks on it. The thing plays fucking beautifully. Released in 86, this thing sold like crazy. There was one and a half million of these babies on pre-order. A live album on pre-order. It's one of the, uh, I think if not the first, it's the second most selling live album in US history. My God. It seems like every great rock act eventually pops out a live album. And I mean... I did some research looking into this album, and apparently at the beginning, it started with a cassette they had of four songs that they went and they sent it to their manager, and they th- they said, I think we have something here. You listen to the cassette, and then after that, they went and listened to 10 years worth of cassettes. Imagine 10 years worth of live performances. So they've been recording like the entire time. Yeah, they just got into the habit of recording and ha- and keeping them and archiving them. So they had this huge range of long full length sets. Dude, they put together a 40 song album. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, and it spans over 10 years. You have to hear how well rehearsed and tight these guys are, man. Oh, we're definitely going to check that these out. These are pros, 3 to 4 hour long sets. Their their act is basically legendary worldwide. They're they got this American pride this like working class rocker thing going and everybody just goes crazy for it. And again, I was not a Bruce Springsteen fan going into this. This is what's so awesome about collecting used records. You know, when you're paying, you know, five, six, seven bucks for a record, you'll go ahead and take a chance. If the thing is clean and you know it's going to play well and you, you know, you don't have to really risk that part. But hey, let's take a risk on this artist. Let's see what they got. You can be opened up the whole thing. And I mean, what better way to experience Bruce Springsteen than live? Well, you're talking about, you know, getting a good deal on a good record. Some of the records I buy today, brand new, are in worse shape than some of these things that, that we've pulled out of crates <laughs> so right. that are 30 plus years old. Yeah. So you never know. You really never know. Yeah. And I mean, just to clarify, you can buy a brand new record. And there could be all kinds of noise on it just because it was pressed like shit. Yeah. Not because it was used at all. But then you get something from the 80s that's mastered by like a legend and it sounds absolutely incredible. It doesn't even have to be mastered by a legend per se. Like True. Even just generic copies of like Fleetwood Mac rumors. Oh, they all sound sound great. great. Yeah. Yeah, they were all pressed at least with some form of detail. They weren't rushed off an assembly line. Well, that's it. That was the main uh, medium for music mm. at that point. What do you? Of well, course. they were rushed off an assembly line at one point, but yeah, but they were done. On, uh, they properly. were rushed off a proper assembly line, you know. <laughs> and then, and then we've got mine here, which uh, I guess plays on the assembly line feel. Uh, Kiss Destroyer, nineteen seventy six. 
look, I'm not a huge fan of Kiss. I was, uh, and uh, you can't really persuade me to be a huge fan of Kiss, but Destroyer has Detroit Rock City on it, and the price was right, so I stuck it in the pile. Look, I'm not, like I said, I'm, I don't even think I would flip the record over if I didn't have to, but uh, Destroyer was their first, fourth album, and it was like their third album to top the charts, and these guys were a marketing machine at that point. So you kind of have to have Kiss in your collection, at least something. Yeah, I, I, I think it was clear, like, Destroyer just put them over that wall. You know, they were climbing the wall, they're climbing, they're climbing, and just Destroyer destroyed, dude. Well, look, it was the third third album to top the charts out of four, and then they released their fifth and sixth album within a year of Destroyer. So by 77, they had two more albums out. That's, know, that's huge. Look, I, I, like millions of other people, am a fan of the Kiss product. But I have to say, if I'm going to be critical, the album isn't very good. There's two or three really great songs and really kind of classic, legendary rock songs that I feel like people will be listening to for a long time. But then, to not be too harsh, it's a bunch of filler. I don't mind that the album is filler so much because I kind of only bought it for two songs. Well, that's ex- that's exactly my point. So, I mean, we put it on uh, last week, right? And we just kind of put it on for Detroit Rock City and then let the album run out. And then at the end of it, we're like, yeah, didn't really feel it, you know? So, look, if it's going to be part of a lot or uh, if it's going to be part of a bunch of vinyls you grab together, sure, sometimes the nostalgia... I mean, but that you this have, is you have to do it. It's 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 not even nostalgia. This this to me is part of why I feel like I'm part hipster. I love the way the album cover looks. I love the theme behind Kiss marketing. You know, like how things are drawn. There was an artist that drew. Who, who was the artist that drew this? I forgot his name. Here, the cover art for Destroyer was painted by fantasy artist Ken Kelly. So like. And then they rehired this out, this he, guy he for another album. The trend, right? Yeah, that's it. So they had a style to to them. You know, he went, he saw them live, and he used those personas that he saw on stage, and he kind of made like character car- cartoons out of them. You know, right? I I love that aspect of Kiss. I love the way they're branded. So yeah, I see. If I'm digging through and I'm flipping through a stack of records, a Kiss record will jump jump right at you, man. It's interesting. But you were just talking about this art, and then I rem- I remember that we have a whole bunch of art in the uh, the villains uh, Queens of Stone Age packaging. Sure, you think they're trying to do something similar? I think I think yeah, a lot of bands try and mimic what Kiss and Iron Maiden have done. The way they successfully got their product, and they they basically branded their music. It wasn't just about fans loving the music. They're, they added another aspect to it, and I mean. Yes, it is a superficial aspect, but art is art. You know, those album covers, they were drawn by an artist. And if there's a style that you like and are attracted to, then you should follow that, man. If if that's going to get you to buy a record, I'm all for it, man. I'm all for records being sold. I don't care how the fuck they're getting sold. Well, I mean, all in all, in all I think we've had some pretty successful digging experiences. And I think that uh, every time we go check out some used stuff, we, we find some... At least one cool record. So it's never really for nothing. 
And uh, we're going to keep doing it. I, I love buying some used uh, stuff. Dude, I got to be honest. Even just the smell of old records, is it like excites like books, me. Right? It excites me though. Like, yeah, it smells like old books. But like just that smell, it means fun. It's just fun to go and like, hey, Muck, look at this. Look what I found. You know, like. It, Put it, it in the pile, dude. It's, you like know? You're, it's like you're digging for treasure, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. If you guys have uh, ever found some cool stuff, um be sure to share it with us either on our Facebook page, Instagram, uh, or send it to us by email um, at the DBTH guys at gmail.com or at our Facebook page at the DBTH guys. Or you know what? If you guys know of any cool used record stores, I mean, we typically shop. I've been to Lanes Catsif in Laval, Phonopolis, Sonorama, Trentois Tour in Montreal. Mm-hmm. If you guys know of any other cool shops in Laval or Montreal or any surrounding areas that have a nice used record selection, you email us. You let us know. We'll link them. We'll we'll put links of everything. We'll Instagram. We'll Facebook. We'll get all those fucking push them at you. You know. So just let us know where you're shopping and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And Spotify here in the near future as soon as uh, we get all this stuff approved. So maybe by uh, the time you listen to this, we're already up there. But most importantly, remember everybody, make some time for music. It's fucking important.